Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. New Zealand's all-blacks captain, Richie McCaw, is considered by many to be the best rugby player ever. While that's a hell of an achievement, you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with creative women? I'm going to explain. Michelle Walsh, my guest today, is co-director of Chasing Great, who, along with her business partner and husband, Leon, wrote the documentary. It follows 34-year-old McCaw through his final season and his attempt as captain to lead his team, the All Blacks, to their first-ever back-to-back World Cup victory. Chasing Great happens to be the highest-grossing documentary in New Zealand history and one of the top 100 highest-grossing documentaries of all time. Chasing Great puts Michelle into a unique category. She's one of the very few females to direct a sports documentary. Some background. Born in Australia, Michelle worked in the film industry in the United Kingdom. Then in 2001, she moved to New Zealand, working for several production companies before she co-founded her own company, Augusto, in 2008. That client list includes Adidas, Samsung, the LPGA, New Zealand Golf, and the America's Cup. In 2016, Michelle co-founded Cornerstone, Augusto's sister company, which focuses on delivering fast, turnaround, stackable content for brands that need to always be on. Well, let's meet and get to know yet another creative woman. So, Michelle, welcome and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So, this is really exciting. You're kind of an international woman. Why were you on the road? Interestingly, I was born in Australia in a tiny place. Well, it's not that small, but on American standards, it is the capital, Canberra, which has th- about 300,000 people and is one of those places that if you, you blink and miss it, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Very uncreative city. In fact, I know people in Canberra will probably hate me for saying this, but you don't go to Canberra to be inspired. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's where our parliament is. It's uh, where I think there's a huge a huge part of the population is public servants. Mm-hmm. And they do a great job running the country, but it's not where you, you tend to go to be to be inspired. So there's not a whole, like you said, creativity. You sort no. of follow the rules here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I've got an amazing family, but there's nobody creative in my life at all. I, I was the odd Well, how one. did you know you were deprived Girl, of creativity? I, I, I don't think I did. I just sat in a corner with a notebook drawing all the time. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. one of those kids. Mm-hmm. When I was eight years old, my dad got posted to Canada and the world opened up a lot. And so I went to like art camps and I used to always beg them to send me to film camps and all these amazing things you can do on this side of the world. Um, And then I went back to Canberra. I moved to Sydney when I was 15. Then I moved to Melbourne. Then I moved to London. Well, when you moved to Sydney when you were 15, you did that with your family, right? I did do that with my family, yep. By that stage, my dad had left being a diplomat. Um, Oh. And I guess maybe Canada opened up his mind too. And I think all of that travel and all of those experiences and seeing how different life can be in different places. That exposure. Yeah, it just gives you this incredible, insatiable need to mm-hmm. keep finding more. It's like all people who enjoy traveling. Sure. So when I went to London, uh, eventually by myself. and After I college. Never went to college. I didn't even finish high school. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. What, when, why is that? I think it was just, um, I had this this idea that I guess it was probably a little bit sassy. But I had this idea that you just, I could, I had things to do. <laughs> I just had, I had stuff I needed to do. And I remember sitting there watching the teachers thinking, they don't want to be here. And I've got stuff to do. And that was supported by your parents? Not really. They all went to university. So it was not well received. Uh-huh. And in fact, only a few years ago, my grandparents were like, 
oh, you've done okay. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> I get that they could have been holding their breath. Yeah. Where were you in the food chain in your family in terms of siblings? Right. I'm the youngest of three girls, so they're they're not creative either. And um, everyone just thought, I, I don't know if I was a black sheep. I don't know. I just had stuff to do. And so I ended up leaving um, school and I got a job as a receptionist at a big magazine company, a Rupert Murdoch-owned magazine company. Oh, okay. And I used to, I was like, I just need to get in and start working. So I used to, in my holidays, go to the other departments around the company, like to the marketing department or or where the illustration happened, and just spend my holidays there learning from all these people. And so, I don't know, I've always just been really curious. I'm not trying to deify you, but I think that's pretty impressive. To be a 17-year-old, even at that age, to have kind of a strong sense of self. You're going to do what it is you were going to do. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I did also go off the rails and go and, you know, not know what I wanted to do for times of that because I was 17. Well, exactly. (laughs) I think I gave my parents a few uh, more gray hairs for sure. But there was something that I just, you know what, it's a curiosity. I think if, if I look back on myself then... I just felt like there was stuff I needed to learn and I needed to know. You just knew what you needed to do for you. I think that's pretty cool. You know, when my dad left, um, when we lived in Canada, he came across Bob Proctor who did The Secret. And it's a funny diversion, but I think it's important. And some of those speakers. And when he came back to Australia, he got quite involved in the uh, public speaking and training. And I got exposed to people like Anthony Robbins and Zig Ziglar and Bob Proctor and all of these interesting people who were very sales focused back then and it's not the kind of style of like communication that I really like now but I guess as a young kid I heard adults saying that not all adults have all the answers Mm. for a start Mm -hmm. so it made me question authority I was like all these people in the room don't know what life's about because they're paying for this guy to tell them how to live life better so so I think I took a lot of messaging from that 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 um, there was another way to live and that lots of people who walk down the street every day and they're in the, on the st- in the subway or the tube may not have considered that there are other paths to follow that are possible. For sure, that it doesn't have to be solely in a classroom. Yeah. Uh-huh. I didn't realize that was probably onboarding back mm-hmm, then. Mm-hmm. But when I was 17, I think there was a curiosity and a security that it was okay to buck the trend, do different things. Because mm-hmm. I'd seen all these these people saying you don't have to just get a job and go down this route. So maybe that was that that contributed. And so at some point you left this company? I stayed there for a couple of years. I ended up getting a job in marketing for a magazine called New Woman New Woman magazine. I don't know. We we also did Marie Claire and Elle. Oh, was, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's quite a big place. So I was exposed to now fashion and um, lifestyle stuff and photography. And Your world's expanding. Arts. Yeah, so it's expanding. Mm-hmm. And then in the background, I'm going down there still in my holidays and doing illustrations for Family Circle magazine, which is like a kids, the kids section and doing mm-hmm. the crafts. So I, I just definitely always had a need to create. After that, I, I went to Elle magazine, which was a different company, and I decided to move to Melbourne on my own. I don't know what I was looking for, but... Um, I, I went to Melbourne and I was curious. You'll think this is unusual probably, but I was quite curious with the aviation industry. That was another thing from traveling as a child. 
I was always fascinated with planes. Mm -hmm. So I took a little sabbatical out of creativity and I worked for air services, which is like air traffic control down in, in the in the property department that look after the beacons or something like the most uncreative place you could ever be. And I was started studying. Um, I, I started a postgraduate in air transport management because I thought I just want to make sure that I don't want to end up working in the airlines as, you know, the, the head of Qantas or something like this. <laughs> I had these ideas. After about six or eight months of that, I was like, this is so not me. I could never be in a big bureaucratic place where in, at that time women, you know, there's so few female pilots. It was, mm. it was, it was clearly not what I wanted to be. So I got straight back into the arts. I went to London. I studied, I did a documentary production course at Chelsea College of Arts. It was only a nighttime course, but I, I then actually met my husband, Leon. He got me a job in this post-production. So you place. met him when you were young? Yeah, yeah. I uh -huh. think I was 22, 23. Wow. And um, he was working in, he's amazing. He's like got the most amazing energy. He's one of those people that is just infectious to be around. And um, he was working in a post-production house. And back then we were doing sound sync. You know, you'd have a DAT tape come in and you'd have the rushes of a BBC drama. And we were like matching the slates at night. And he taught me how to do that job. And the idea was, we weren't together then, he, I was just working with him. And the idea was that he was going to teach me how to do the job and go on to doing the day shift and I would stay doing the night shift. And we he, we sort of talked about it. And we're like, oh, we might as well share a one-bed bed sit. We're so broke. You can sleep in it during the day. I'll sleep in it during the oh, night. So, yeah, as, you know, uh, convenient. Convenient. I, I don't think we ever thought about, like, who's going to change the sheets or something. I don't know. Or who's going to share the bed. <laughs> no, well, we thought, well, he'll sleep in the day and mm -hmm. I'll sleep in yeah, it. I gotcha. But he never went to day shift. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so we used to work sound syncing all night, these rushes in the middle of the night. And then we'd go back in the day to the single bed in the middle of London. And, you know, needless to say, we got together. Yeah, you think? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a Kiwi. I was Australian. And um, we met. I mean, that's how we sort of got together. And um, and we've had this most incredible journey since. But separate from mm. Leon, yeah, yeah. did something happen to you there that really sort of spoke to you about being in that business about, you know, being in film, even though it was mostly sound that you yeah, were working yeah, on, that sure. something must have, you know, registered with you. You know, when I was doing those um, back in Canada when I was 12 or whatever, when I was doing those um, video production courses, I knew that there was something really special in that. Mm -hmm. And then when I, I also, when I was 17 and I left school, I did this course, which is quite a big thing in the advertising agency called the award school I think it was the youngest person to ever do it it was a creative uh, 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 learning how to be a creative in big ad agencies and I'd been on set a couple of times through that experience so I I think I knew that I was drawn to it but I didn't really know how I was going to do it but the documentary part was always really important since I was really really young I've watch more documentaries than drama. I, if you look at my Netflix account, you'll find like three series and every documentary consumed. So take us a little bit more on that journey. So at what point did you start to realize that this was a calling? Mm. When we came back from London... Uh, we, you mean you went back home? So so Leon and I said decided we had to go somewhere, and we, we came back to New Zealand, actually. Was that your first introduction to New Zealand? I'd been there once, but I knew nothing about mm -hmm. New Zealand. So you went to New Zealand because of him? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were young, and we had no assets. We had two suitcases, you know, 500 pounds maybe in the <laughs> south. And no ties. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And 
he saw a job in the newspaper saying um, that they wanted a cameraman and editor down in Rotorua. Now, Rotorua is like, if, it, if anybody's ever seen New Zealand, when you see the bubbling mud and the thermal activity, that's mm. where it, a lot of it comes from. It's got about 40,000 people. It's a little tourist place. It smells like sulfur. It's quite difficult <laughs> to live in. <laughs> okay. Um, but he saw a job for a cameraman and editor down there, and and um, we, we found ourselves in Rotorua, and I started helping him out there. Uh, getting more involved in things. And the directing path, how I got into directing was quite unusual. I think when you go to a place that's small, and I think this is important for some of your audience that live in small places as well. When you go somewhere small, there's often much bigger opportunities because you don't have the people to do the the work. Mm -hmm. So I found myself in this really weird situation where people said, oh, you've worked in London. You must be able to like do stuff in film. So they made assumptions, didn't they? Huge assumptions. Mm -hmm. They were like, you can edit, right? I'm like, sure. (laughs) Leon over here. Even Leon was like, he got this job as a cameraman and editor. I don't know if he knew the front of a camera or not. (laughs) But I think there's something important in that, that when you go to somewhere small and somebody gives you an opportunity. Seize it. Absolutely seize it. And I I do believe in the fake it before you make it when you're young. You've just got to give stuff a go. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying lie about what you do, but if somebody gives you a carrot or something, just grab it with both hands. Mm -hmm. So I found myself in these weird situations where I was researching some stuff for some high-profile sort of government agencies around kids. Like um, we have kids who have been on a benefit. I don't know what you have here that's equivalent, but kids... You mean on public assistance? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So kids, um, we have quite a a strong public welfare Right, right, right. So these kids have like, they've left school, they've often been in a really poor situation at home where their parents have been living on a benefit and they've left school and don't have any sort of... Resources. Yeah. And there was a couple of kids that had broken through that. And so this government department had said, can we tell their stories? Uh, And because there was nobody there to do this, I was like, I'll research that. I'll meet these kids and interview them. I found myself interviewing these amazing young people who, against all odds, had created a life or a path for themselves. So when it came to directing the thing, they were like, well, you know them now, so do you want to direct it? You know, I was like, what? So this is clear <laughs> on-the-job training. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was very upfront and said, I, you know, I'm, I'll absolutely do my best. And I remember thinking, I've got to get a great cameraman. I'm going to have to. Well, you who, Leon. Yeah, yeah, Leon. <laughs> you know how to shoot now, right? <laughs> um, and you probably didn't have to pay him. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, you were sleeping That's with the guy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of helpful favors. And and so I, that's how my directing career started. I was just thrown into a situation. That's a beautiful thing about Doc. I didn't really need to know. I remember, like, we didn't have – it sounds ridiculous, but you couldn't get on the internet proper tutorials on how to direct. There was no so YouTube videos. So a lot videos. of it was instinct for you. No, I was, like, re- I was oh. trying to get books, like, ah. working out what a wide shot was. Wow, wow. <laughs> and I'd done that little course in London, but really that didn't prepare me for actually facing these sort of mini – and mini, I guess now when I think about it, it was like content back then. It was like these mini doco stories. So we stayed in Rotorua. We ended up starting a little company there and we made some really interesting sort of 10-minute documentary pieces. One was on a sisterhood of nuns, believe it or not, that were recruiting nuns in Tonga at the time. I mean, some of the projects we in did. In Tonga? Oh, yeah. In the South Pacific? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> some of the things we did, I look back and I think, what was that? But all of it was the most amazing grounding. And people were trusting us with these little stories. We were in a little place. 
the consequences were low and we were able to stretch ourselves and figure it that out. That is so fabulous. I bet in your wildest dreams you had no clue that you were going to direct uh, a documentary about this rugby no rock star. Yeah, no way. There's no, there's no, uh, we might have been gutsy, but we, there was never a vision. There was never a business plan. There was never got anything written down. We just tried to do, or I tried to do the very, very, very best that I could. And and then all of a sudden, I remember sitting there with Richie McCaw, it's like the night before a World Cup final, and I was interviewing him. And I just had that moment flush over me that you don't let happen very often of, oh my God, what am I doing What the hell am I doing here? Like, how is that? I don't know, imposter syndrome maybe hit a little bit? Were you asked to do this? Um, No, but not specifically. We asked Richie to do it and he said he wouldn't trust anybody else. So So your street cred was worth volumes from your company. Yeah, yeah, and the trust that we'd built, definitely. But it was more about... The relationship and the trust. He, they knew we could do quality work, but we'd right. never done anything on that scale. And in fact, when he agreed to it, we didn't even know what it was going to be. We self-funded it for eight months. Well, who gave birth to this idea of making this documentary? Leon, my partner, was. Um, we were talking about the fact that Richie was likely to retire. And he said, I think he's always the one who's so gutsy. He's like, we should make his documentary. And I was like, every single person on the planet in these circles will want to make this documentary. And he was like, I'm just going to ask him. And I was like, no, I, I don't think you could ask him. Because he hasn't, this, even, I mean, this he guy hasn't is... even said he's going to retire. And we're saying, can we make a, a movie about your retirement? Like he's, we're basically saying you're, you're, fin- you're finished. Before but, he acknowledges yeah. that he's, he's at the and end he's, of And it. he wasn't finished in terms of what he was capable of, but saying we're, we are seeing the end of your road. So there's no bigger rock star I think he's the statistically the greatest player of all time in rugby, but the All Blacks statistically are arguably the most successful sports team in the world in history also. So there, he just breathes the rare air. Yeah, I mean, he's the most photographed, videoed, interviewed person. I think that rugby, the Rugby World Cup, is the third most watched global event after the Olympics and the FIFA World Cup or something. It's a big there, deal. Okay. Or maybe, and then maybe Super Bowl. It's in the, it's in the top Gotcha. Four. You're a woman and mm. Richie McCaw isn't. Mm. So what did that mean for you? I'm so grateful to say he, he, I never felt anything other than him respecting that I could do the job. There was never any sense that I was a, I didn't feel like there was a sense from him that I was a woman in that world. But I was uber aware of it in every other part of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, there were so many people that wanted to make it. They didn't know why. Why, why you were I was selected? Making it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, particularly. But your, your company had street cred. Yeah, but but in a more commercial sense. Interestingly, we were doing more like Augusto is great because we have a big commercial engine this, um, that makes amazing work and content. And but it also has another part of the business that does long form. So things like Ever- we did um, Everest Rescue. We did um, a series for New Zealand that went to Netflix called Short Poppies. We're doing some stuff with Discovery. You don't do features. You do documentaries. No, we don't do features. Okay. So when we approached Richie, we didn't know what it was going to be. We just said, I think we should start capturing this. Imagine if we can capture this story in real time, time. instead of mm. doing it retrospectively. Right. And Richie was like, but 
what if I don't win? Is there a story? And why would people want to watch me on the big screen? I'm like, I think a few people will want to watch And is this, what, 2015? It was 20, end of 2014. Okay. And luckily, because we own Augusto too, we can, we can just, there's no network saying you can or can't do something. Right. You don't have to go out for funding. Not, well, we did. Um, yeah, I guess but, you would have to yeah, do it was, that. Yeah, it, right. was, it was a big expensive doco, but we didn't have to, we, we could self-fund it. Mm-hmm. Initially, we were like, this is worth it. There's, if we can get access to Richie McCaw during a World I, Cup. I mean, hello, everybody, like, right? I, I, yeah. When you think about it, it's like getting access to any of the big U.S. sports stars during... Like LeBron James during or, uh, like a Tom playoffs Brady. or something. Sure, you know, sure. It's, it's and getting to them the night before. The complexities of that were huge. And my producer, who was amazing, Cass Avery, you know, we literally like we have no budget, no <laughs> idea what this is going to be. We want to film one of the biggest, highest profile athletes in the world during a World Cup. Are you up for it? Yeah, and she was like, "Are you nuts?" Yeah, and she was like, "Hell yeah!" Mm -hmm. You know, like I think there's there's that energy, and when you're from New Zealand as well, I think there's a there's an energy that's almost palpable, which is like we just get out and do stuff because Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's not a jaded kind of. I think we're just in we're just in the middle middle of of nowhere, nowhere. Mm -hmm. and so we're always testing ourselves against a global market. We always are pushing to be better. Mm -hmm. We we have to be really. they have this expression in New Zealand called the number eight wire, which is a fencing wire if in, on farms. But it basically means we will take anything to fix something. We'll take whatever it takes with whatever little resources we have to do what we need to do because we're so under-resourced there, um, whether that be people or, or with budgets. So you find these incredibly creative people who do multiple roles. Most of the people I work with can do multiple things. Did you think or do you still think that this was the biggest project of your professional career? Without um, a doubt. Without, without a, doubt. a doubt. I don't even know at the moment how we'll top it. Although not that you have to. No, maybe not. Maybe that's that's something I've got to think about. But what happened with response? I mean, apparently mm. Richie McCaw didn't care no. what your, your gender was. You know what it really hit me, I think, is when the documentary was finished. So we'd gone about this process of 700 hours of footage, including game footage. It was 18 months of shooting. It was a really huge project. I was still running the company at the time. I have four kids also. I oh, my a, God. No, but I, I have heaps of help. I'm, I'm not I saying I'm... I don't care. I'm, what I mean is head down. I wasn't thinking about my gender. I wasn't thinking about, about anything except for how do we finish this film. I had a great co-director who was post-directing um, to take some of the pressure off because I, I still had the But company. 700 hours of footage, oh, my God. Just luckily only uh, like 150 were... <laughs> of um, interviews or actuality or mm-hmm. so, but mm-hmm. a lot of it was game footage. We we filmed Richie with seven cameras off the ball in a game, so you know that added up. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, so I was head down making it, and then you know when you're making a film like that, all you can see is the end of getting the thing to cinema. We had Park Road Post who did the Hobbit doing sound design. I mean, hmm. the experiences were extraordinary, and we're just like, just get it out, get it out. Anyway, so we finished the film, and it was not until all the press and the PR started coming out that I was like, hang on a minute. It was the first time I, I'd even understood the, the word gender bias. I, I All of these things started happening that I was thinking, whoa, 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 this... Uh, um, I'll give you an example. I was interviewed probably, I don't know, a couple dozen times with my co-director sometimes, sometimes without... I'd seen the EPK go to the electronic press kit, go to w- what was actually in it, go out to all the media outlets. And I'd been in the interviews myself, obviously. And when I was started getting press back, I was reading it and I was like, 
hang on, I know what I said, or I know what my co-director said, or I know what they know of me, so why am I being represented as essentially, in a lot of cases, sort of the secondary, sometimes slightly dizzy person who might have had something to do with the film. Are you are you yeah, serious? I'm, you were so dismissed? So dismissed in so many cases. So it would be, and I love my Justin Pemberton, my co-director, he's amazing, and he deserves lots of brilliant accolades. He's a clever man. But it, what was happening is you'd have articles that would say, Justin Pemberton, Emmy Award winning, blah, 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 did blah, 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 this pithy quote, and then it would say, Michelle Walsh, you know, mother of four, said there'll be some laughs. It was unbelievable. I was like... And, and then I was thinking, am I being precious? And and I was like, no, because I, I directed the film. He did post-production and they knew How that. insulting. So they knew that I'd, I'd travelled around the world filming this thing. And and it was just happening over and over again. <laughs> Another instance, I was I was about to talk on a panel in, um, in Australia and I, I w- wasn't sure if I was able to make that um, event. The panel is of these incredible people. Some of them from this, a lot, a lot of them from the sports community, and it was uh, the panel was in front of a lunch where people from a lot of men probably had were paying quite a lot of money to come and have lunch and watch the panel. And I was saying to um, some people involved in the sports sector, I I don't know if I can make the panel. Um, I'm going to be away, but I'm not. I don't really have a profile in Australia. No one will know who I am in the room. And this particular male's first response to that was, oh, yeah, they could think you're the stripper. Oh, good I, God. I, that, I, oh. I literally was like, or they could think I was the director. Like, I didn't even have anything to say. I was like, what? So a woman, yeah, would, a woman walks into say? a room that's predominantly sports people. And he kind of thought it was funny. I don't think he even meant to offend me. That was, no, he didn't mean to offend me. I know he didn't. But I thought, isn't that interesting that his first response to a woman walks into a room. You were the, you were the arm candy there. I, mu- I must be, oh, well, I could be the stripper. It was the most bizarre thing. Isn't that something? Um, and and I, I did radio interviews where, where, you know, people insinuated all sorts of things. And that was the first time I was like, this is real. And then I started looking out to all the other women that I read articles about. And then I wondered what they really said and how they were being represented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one that got me all the time by other women uh, journalists, who I have lots of respect for, but they'd intro me as Michelle Walsh, mother of four. And that really got up my goat because I love my kids. I think uh, I'm very proud of what I do as a mum. But that's not the skill that I brought to this film. That's not why I was selected to, to make this film. To me, when you say... When you when you introduce a woman as a mother first, when they're established in their career, it somehow devalues their whole decades of experience. Well, you know, it's a, it's making me think about this. Is I never mentioned that you were a mother. No, I it's just, great. Well, is that a sin of omission? No, but, you know? but and I brought it up, and I'm happy to. That's the thing. That's fine. Well, sure, sure. That yeah. that, that is also part of who you yeah, are. And, of course. and it helped me in the film in in the respect of I I really considered what will kids get out of this film? What can a younger generation understand in this film? And I had a good good insights because I have kids. Do you think that? Well, I guess unbeknownst to you, you became a pioneer. Is that fair for me no, to say? No, I don't think so. Or are you just being, you know, I modest? No, I've never really thought about it like that. I I think there's so many women doing great things. Well, I have met, and that's the best thing about this job, a lot of female directors. The majority happen to be documentary film directors. That's not a bad thing. I think thing there's like a reason for that. I do too. But the fact of the matter is that even in 2018, I think I could use the word anomaly. 
right? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I don't disagree. I think we have a long way to go. And, and you know the thing about I love sports storytelling, the reason I'm not particularly athletic myself, I love sports storytelling because all of life's emotions play out in a stadium <laughs> yeah. in front of 80,000 people yeah. and from heartbreak, triumph, tragedy. Sure. It's a, it's a brilliant place to connect with emotions. And that's why, you know, people, sponsor, uh, the sponsorship market in the US is worth $60 billion. $48 billion of that goes to sports sponsorship because brands understand that people make deep connections with sports and athletes. It's very personal. It can become yeah. very personal. It's, it's, it's tribal. And so I love sports storytelling. Um, but I went to a summit. I go to some summits. One one was called Leaders in Sport, which I really like. There's some great people that speak there. And you go there and there are 2,000 men and there's, you know, it feels like 40 women. And I don't get angry about that. I just think there's so many people missing out. The fans are missing out. The players are missing out. The um, the the governing bodies, they're all missing out from having a female perspective. Diversity generally, let's just, I mean, yeah. I'm going to wrap up all diversity. Of course. Um, but the absolutely male perspective is so critical too and has so much to offer. But the lack of balance is, is just a loss. Well, it's only one perspective, like you yeah. said. I mean, you know, the world isn't just made up of men, much to their shock, you know. <laughs> I hate to break it to you guys. I know. But... Like, that film wouldn't have been that film if a man had made it. Now, it could have been an equally great film. It would have been a different film. And did he love it, Richie? Yeah, I think he was really, really proud of it. He's incredibly humble. We got some amazing feedback. We had um, people saying, you know, I was putting my, my kids' um, clothes away and I found a little note in their drawer writing down what they wanted to be when they grew up, like Richie does in the film. And there was lots of beautiful stories of, um, particularly around that, kids who had been bullied and um, <laughs> and 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 heard him say that he they could be whatever they want. They had to believe in themselves. Mm. It's a very inspirational film mm -hmm. in that respect. Um, and I think for Richie, that was what he wanted as well, to inspire. So I, I think he really enjoyed it. I asked him at the end of the film when all of this gender stuff was going on. It was after I'd finished and I caught up with him and I said, can I just ask you, was it ever, did it ever occur to you that I was a female and he, or that that was odd? And he was like, no. And I said, oh, it's just, I've had some weird experiences. And he was like, he just seemed really genuinely shocked, which in turn shocked me because he's from that world. But he also has a very strong ma mother, and I think he's he's probably from a matriarchal-type family, and maybe that's... Well, and I guess he also saw you as the professional. <laughs> I you know, so. I mean, th that's what he saw. <laughs> so is that kind of what your focus continues to mm. be, the world of yeah. sports? I'm doing it. There's a couple of projects I have on at the moment. One's over here with an American sports team. So your company is now going to be New York Yeah, based. we have an office now in Canal Street. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to gush and uh, at the risk of embarrassing you. I'm like in awe of you. <laughs> I mean, you just do whatever the hell you need to do. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty freaking impressive. Yeah. I d you know, if you, I think about life... As this this box of like opportunity, I want I wanted to say chocolates, but it's big, yeah, it's but bigger it's than been that. used. <laughs> I know, but it's also more than that. I think options and the opportunities are so endless. That it's just every corner you turn, there's somebody interesting. There's a so story. So it's a you know. carpe diem for you, isn't it? It's a seize the day. It is absolutely a seize the day. Yeah, it's not because I've, I'm worried about regretting. I don't like Richie in the film talks about not wanting to um, get old and worry that he 
somehow missed out on life. I don't have that feeling at all. I just see the world as this exciting playground of opportunity. I was just going to use that word opportunity. What a wonderful thing for your family to have a mom like you and a dad like your your husband. Maybe you're in this together. And I think it's wonderful. So here's the deal. You're coming back, okay? (laughs) After you get, you know, Manhattan under your belt a little bit. You promise me you'll do that? I hope I've got some good stories to tell you by then. For this is for me. I'm not saying it's for everyone. Mm -hmm. But in the film, actually, Richie says this thing about when things get really scary, when things are massive, he's in the car on the way to the World Cup. He's going to play his last game of his whole career in in front of millions of people. And I was talking to him about what does that pressure feel like? Pressure comes from expectation, scrutiny, and consequence. That's what um, Dr. Evan, Dr. Kerry Evans in the film talks about. But I said to him, you're under the most pressure, the most, the most scrutiny, expectation, consequences are huge. How do you deal with that? And he said, I like to think of the big wave surfers. What do you say, surfers? Yeah. <laughs> Some words don't work well in New Zealand, new, with a new, new Zealand accent. It's oh, yeah, you're coming to New York. Surfers. <laughs> um, think about the big wave surfers. They want to be on that wave. They want to test themselves. And I was like, oh, my God, that's it. When you feel like it, you have a huge wave in front of you that's terrifying, instead of looking up at the wave and just thinking, oh, my, how am I going to survive this? Put yourself on top of the wave. And I, I literally am like, I want to be here. I want to test myself. And I feel, in my mind's eye, I move to the wave and I sit up on top of it and know that it's going to be a massive r- ride. That is the best way to end. Michelle Walsh, <laughs> I say how much I love this job. I, I so enjoyed meeting you and... I hope our paths, yeah, you know, so excited. cross again and again and much continued success. Thank you and for doing this. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to talk. Well, that's that means the world yeah, to no, me. Yeah, no, really. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. <laughs>